Hello and welcome to A Graduate's Guide 2 with me, Molly CP. Expect bursts of profanity, plenty of early 2000s references and an obsession with our words from the outset of this podcast and throughout. Hello my lovelies, my queens and everything in between. I'm so sorry that I've had a little break from podcasting. I've just been super busy at the moment. I've just finished all my uni assignments, which is so exciting. And I started a new job as well, which is also very exciting. So I've been busy getting used to that, but I'm back with another episode. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a different one. I've told you guys before, I think it was on my first episode, how I'm really interested in true crime cases. And also very passionate about combating sexual assault, whether that be for men, women or anyone else. So today I'm going to be talking about the People versus Brock Turner case. The reason I decided to cover this case is because after watching Promising Young Women, directed by Emerald Fennell and starring Carrie Mulligan, the film really touched me and really sat with me for a few days. And Emerald Fennell, the director, said that the reason it was called A Promising Young Woman is the fact that Brock Turner was commonly referred to as a promising young, young man within the media. So after hearing this fact, I decided to research the case a little more because I feel... I've only heard a very skimmed over version of it, but just as a trigger warning, there are going to be discussions today of sexual assault, rape, and just very hard to hear information. So if this episode isn't for you, it's absolutely fine, and I will see you on another episode. When discussing this case, I'm not going to be putting a huge amount of focus on Brock Turner, or you know his past, or his motives, or reasoning. Because ultimately, rape is wrong no matter the situation, no matter what the person has been through. And I don't want to give Brock Turner any more limelight. I want to be focusing a lot more on the victim in hand. And I'm going to be giving a lot more detail about her and her life as this episode continues. The night in question is January the 17th, 2015. Brock Turner was born in 1995 and at the time of the attack he was 19 years old. He was a freshman at Stanford University and he'd enrolled on a swimming scholarship. Chanel Miller, the victim, who was known as Emily Doe at the time of her trial because she wanted to remain anonymous, was just visiting her sister at the university. In 2014, Chanel had graduated from the University of California with a degree in literature. Chanel Miller was 22 years old at the time of the assault. During the night of the rape, both Chanel Miller and Turner were at the same party. Unknown to Chanel, Turner had attempted to kiss her sister who had pulled away after he approached her twice. Turner's account, he claims he met Chanel at the party and they walked off together, holding hands. Turner claimed the events which followed were consensual. Later on, as the court case proceeded, he attempted to make them appear romantic and special and they had the most wonderful time. When in fact, when he was questioned, he said he couldn't even name Chanel or even recognise her in a lineup. There was a complete disregard to Chanel from Brock's side. He had no cares and was simply trying to protect himself in the situation. There was no remorse or admittance of his guilt. Chanel was discovered by two Swedish Stanford University students who had seen Brock Turner lying on top of Chanel when she was unconscious. Both the men shouted at Brock, asking what he was doing. Brock Turner attempted to run for it when Johnson managed to trip him up and hold him down 75 feet from the location of the attack. When Johnson questioned Turner, saying, what are you smiling for? Which immediately signifies that Brock Turner did not understand the severity of the situation. He felt no guilt, no concern, and was typically 
enjoying himself, which is just, oh my God, it's just the most awful thing to imagine and really, really terrifying. I'm not going to go into any more details regarding Brock Turner's version of events because they are just blatant lies and, as I've said previously, give such disrespect to Chanel. So we're not going to be giving any more focus on them. What I will say is that Chanel has a complete blank in memory from leaving the party, well, more during the party, until she woke up in the emergency room. There's a quotation that states, Chanel regained consciousness at 4.15am. She later testified at Turner's trial that at the time she regained consciousness, she had pine needles in her hair and in her body and dried blood on her hands and elbows. In an interview with the police, she said she did not recall being alone with the man during the night and stated she did not consent to sexual activity. At the hospital, the victim, Chanel, was found to have abrasions and erythema, which is reddening on the skin. One nurse determined that she'd experienced significant trauma, physical injury, bruising, among others, and penetrating trauma, piercing and cutting injuries. At first, Chanel didn't even believe she was assaulted. She believed that the... Oh, God, it's just so heartbreaking. She believed that the police had got the wrong person. She couldn't understand the idea or even fathom that she'd been assaulted. I will reveal and discuss um, Chanel's impact statement later on in the episode, which you will get to hear her side of events and using her words. The same day of Brock Turner's arrest, he was posted a $150,000 bail. There's no denying in these situations, particularly with white males, there's such a degree of privilege that typically if they're wealthy, they have no worries. They don't have to worry about being imprisoned or incarcerated because they just know their privilege is going to succeed them and that they will always receive the benefit of the doubt. Brock Turner pleaded not guilty to all five charges he was indicted on. There were two charges for rape, two for felony sexual assault and one for attempted rape. I'm going to read some excerpts from Chanel Miller's extremely powerful victim statement just so you can get a bigger picture of the situation and how Chanel was impacted by this trauma and this assault. Your Honour, if it's all right... For the majority of this statement, I would like to address the defendant directly. You don't know me, but you've been inside of me. And that's why we're here today. On January 17th, 2015, it was a quiet Saturday night at home. My dad made some dinner and I was sat at the table with my younger sister who was visiting for the weekend. I worked full time and was approaching my bedtime. I planned to stay at home by myself, watch some TV and read while she went to a party with her friends. Then I decided it's my only night with her. I had nothing better to do, so why not? There's a dumb party ten minutes from my house. I would go, dance like a fool, and embarrass my younger sister. On the way there, I joked that undergrad guys would have braces. My sister teased me for wearing a beige cardigan to a frat party like a librarian. I called myself Big Mama, because I knew I'd be the oldest one there. I made silly faces, let my guard down and drank liquor too fast, not factoring in that my tolerance had significantly lowered since college. Then the next thing I remember, I was in a gurney in a hallway. I had dried blood and bandages on the back of my hands and elbow. I thought I may have fallen and I was in an admin office on campus. I was very calm and wondering where my sister was. A deputy explained I had been assaulted. I still remained calm, assured he was speaking to the wrong person. I knew no one at this party. When I was finally allowed to use the restroom, I pulled down the hospital pants they'd given me, went to pull down my underwear, and I felt nothing. 
I still remember the feelings of my hands touching my skin and grabbing nothing. I looked down and there was nothing. The thin piece of fabric and the only thing between my vagina and anything else was missing and everything inside me was silenced. I still don't have the words for that feeling. In order to keep breathing, I thought maybe the policeman had used scissors to cut them off for evidence. I sat in, I was asked to sign papers that read rape victim and I thought something has really happened. My clothes were confiscated and I stood naked while the nurse held a ruler to various abrasions on my body and photographed them. The three of us were to comb the pine needles out of my hair, six hands to fill one paper bag. To calm me down, they said it's just the flora and fauna, flora and fauna. I had multiple swabs inserted into my vagina and anus. Needles for shots, pills, had a Nikon pointed right into my spread legs. I had long pointed beaks inside me and I had my vagina smeared with cold blue paint to check for abrasions. After a few hours of this, they let me shower. I stood there examining my body beneath the stream of water and decided, I don't want my body anymore. I was terrified of it. I didn't know what had been in it, if I had been contaminated, who had touched it. I wanted to take off my body like a jacket and leave it at the hospital with everything else. On that morning, all I was told that was that I had been found behind a dumpster, potentially penetrated by a stranger, and that I should get retested for HIV because results don't always show up immediately. But for now, I should go home and get back to my normal life. Imagine stepping into the world with only that information. One day I was at work, scrolling through the news on my phone, and came across an article. In it I read and learned for the first time about how I was found unconscious. With my hair dishevelled, long necklace wrapped around my neck, bra pulled out of my dress, dress pulled over my shoulders and pulled up above my waist. That I was butt naked all the way down to my boots, legs spread apart above my waist excuse me, legs spread apart and had been penetrated by a foreign object by someone I did not recognise. This was how I learned what had happened to me. Sitting at my desk, reading the news at work, I learned what happened to me the same time everyone else in the world learned what happened to me. That's when the pine needles in my hair made sense. They didn't fall from a tree. He had taken off my underwear and his fingers had been inside of me. I don't even know this person. I still don't know this person. The night after it happened, he said he didn't know my name, said he wouldn't be able to identify me in a lineup. didn't mention any dialogue between us, no words, only dancing and kissing. Dancing is a cute term. Was it snapping fingers and twirling dancing, or just bodies grinding up against each other in a crowded room? I wonder if kissing was just faces sloppily pressed up against each other. When the detective asked if he had planned on taking me back to his dorm, he said no. When the detective asked how we'd ended up behind the dumpster, he said he didn't know. He admitted kissing other girls at the party, one of whom was, was my sister who pushed her away. He admitted to wanting to hook up with someone. I was the wounded antelope of the herd, completely alone and vulnerable, physically unable to fend for myself, and he chose me. Sometimes I think if I hadn't gone, then this would never have happened. But then I realised it would have happened just to somebody else. You're about to enter four years of access to drunk girls and parties, and this is the foot you started off on. Then it is right for you did not continue. The night after it happened, he said he thought I liked it because I rubbed his back. A back rub. Never mentioned me voicing my consent. Never mentioned us even speaking. Back rub. One more time, in public news, I learnt that my ass and vagina were completely exposed outside. My breasts had been groped, fingers had been jabbed inside me along with pine needles and debris. 
My bare skin and head was being rubbing against the ground behind the dumpster while an erect freshman was humping my half-naked, unconscious body. But I don't remember. So how do I prove I didn't like it? If you're hoping that one of my organs will implode from anger and I will die, I'm almost there. You were very close. This is not a story of another drunk college hookup with poor decision making. Assault is not an accident. Somehow you still don't get it. Somehow you still sound confused. I will now read portions of the defendant's statement and respond to them. You said, being drunk, I just couldn't make the best decision and neither could she. Alcohol is not an excuse. Is it a factor? Yes. But alcohol was not the one who stripped me, fingered me, had my head dragging against the ground with me almost fully naked. Having too much to drink was an amateur mistake. That I admit, but it is not criminal. Everyone in this room has had a night where they have regretted drinking too much or know someone close to them who has had a night where they regretted drinking too much. Regretting drinking is not the same as regretting sexual assault. We were both drunk. The difference is I did not take off your pants and underwear, touch you inappropriately and run away. That is the difference. That is only some small excerpts from the victim impact statement. Um, if you want to read the whole one, it's available on BuzzFeed. And there's also a really incredible reading of Chanel reading her impact statement on YouTube, which I highly recommend watching. Even despite this incredibly moving, raw piece, Brock Turner was sentenced to a minuscule six months in prison. A lifetime of trauma for Chanel Miller and her family was belittled to a six months. On March 30th, 2016, Turner had been found guilty of three felonies, Assault with intent to rape an intoxicated woman, sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. Prosecutors recommended that Turner be given a six-year prison sentence based on the purposefulness of the action, the effort to hide this activity and her intoxicated state. Santa Clara County probation officials, including his probation officer Monica Lassiter, recommended that Turner receive a moderate county jail sentence with formal probation based on Turner's lack of criminal history, youth and expression of remorse. I've seen continuous accounts of people feeling, especially on the defence side, that Brock Turner had such a bright future ahead of him. Why can one mistake ruin his life? And there's just such disregard towards Chanel and her life. Her life's been destroyed. Her emotions have been destroyed because of this man's actions he's not even a man he's a boy he's a pathetic little boy who just did the most grotesque violent act that you can even fathom and the fact that there are people standing out there defending him saying he still deserves a future is absolute bullshit how can someone who violates another person deserve any kind of future at all it was then revealed on the June 2nd, 2016, Judge Aaron Persky sentenced Turner to six months in the Santa Clara County Jail, followed by three years probation. After three months of jail, Turner was released on September the 2nd, 2016. He's a permanently registered sex offender and was made obligated to participate in a sex offender rehabilitation programme. Three months. I, it just leaves me speechless. I just think... How can anyone, any victim, feel they can come speak up when scum of the earth men, or 
you know, women or whoever is the perpetrator, like Brock Turner, violate someone's body, entering it without permission, and three months is considered an adequate punishment. There was a huge, naturally, a huge deal of controversy surrounding the sentence. Many believe the sentencing judge, Aaron Persky, had held a bias in favour of Turner, as Persky himself had been a former student and lacrosse team captain at Stanford University. Typical lad culture, backing each other up, assuming the lodge should win. It's just... I, I know you can't see me right now, but my hands are, like, tensing. It just makes me so angry. Turner's father protested the prison sentence, despite being six months at the time, and he requested by the prosecutor, saying, the sentence is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20-plus years of life. Santa Clara County District Attorney Jeffrey F. Rosen criticised the letter from Turner's father to the court, saying it has reduced a, a brutal sexual assault to 20 minutes of action. I feel like this is really important to mention because it shows what kind of an environment Turner grew up in and what perhaps many men or boys are learning from their fathers. It's learnt behaviour and the fact that his father has given no respect to women, no respect to Chanel and the trauma she's, he, she has been experiencing at hands of her son, it's just baffling. And it shows that we need to have, particularly in schools, university and or any form of education, sexual assault awareness, and what consent is, and what consent means, and how things like this should never happen in the first place, or ever at all, and should never cross someone's mind, and it, oh my goodness, it is just baffling, as I've said many times, and I just think it shows hugely that we learn from our elders, and those in pop culture who influence and there needs to be equality in our lives, encouraged and broadcasted. And, you know, women respected and not being put down to described as 20 minutes of action. It's just vile. Chanel Miller has gone on to have a very successful and fruitful life. When she was still under the pseudonym Emily Doe, she was honoured at Glamour's Woman of the Year Awards in 2016. She's released an autobiographical memoir called Know My Name, a memoir, and spoken out publicly many times about her assault and the effect it had on her and giving a voice to women all over the world. Chanel is an absolute hero. She is such an inspiration to me and many other women out there. Her strength and her courage is just incredible and breathtaking. And I really hope you guys take the time to research Chanel, perhaps read her book, watch an interview, because she is just the most incredible woman, that one of the most incredible women I've ever come across. And I think it's really important to show that such horrendous trauma and violation, you can still push through to the other side. Chanel managed to, after her rapist was sentenced to merely three months and is now walking about the world like nothing has happened. And yeah, Chanel is just the most incredible woman. And I think you guys should definitely look into her work. I think she's just amazing. I know that was a bit of a heavier episode, but I felt it was really important to talk about. God, I feel drained after talking about that. <laughs> oh, but um, yeah, I think, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I hope you take something away from it, whether you decide to educate yourself further on sexual assault oncologies and the statistics. Say It Loud is an amazing organisation 
which a very own Brock student created called Meredith Graham, um, which is an amazing resource if you want to be educated about sexual assault or you want to talk to someone. They have an amazing listening service as well. You can find them on Instagram at Say It Loud Space. I highly recommend them. And I hope you guys stay safe and well and I will talk to you all soon.